Chapter One of The Law and the Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wiebke Müller. The Law and the Lady by Wilkie Collins. Chapter One. Note addressed to the reader. In offering this book to you, I have no preface to write. I have only to request that you will bear in mind certain established truths which occasionally escape your memory when you are reading a work of fiction. Be pleased, then, to remember, first, that the actions of human beings are not invariably governed by the laws of pure reason. Secondly, that we are by no means always in the habit of bestowing our love on the objects which are the most deserving of it in the opinions of our friends. Thirdly, and lastly, that characters which may not have appeared, and events which may not have taken place, within the limits of our own individual experience, may nevertheless be perfectly natural characters, and perfectly probable events, for all that. Having said these few words, I have said all that seems to be necessary at the present time in presenting my new story to your notice. W.C. London, February the 1st, 1875 the law and the lady part one paradise lost chapter one the bride's mistake for after this manner in the old time the holy women also who trusted in god adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands even as sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement Concluding the marriage service of the Church of England in those well-known words, my uncle Starkweather shut up his book, and looked at me across the altar rails with a hearty expression of interest on his broad red face. At the same time, my aunt, Mrs. Starkweather, standing by my side, tapped me smartly on the shoulder and said, "'Valeria, you are married!' Where were my thoughts? What had become of my attention? I was too bewildered to know. I started and looked at my new husband. He seemed to be almost as much bewildered as I was. The same thought had, as I believe, occurred to us both at the same moment. Was it really possible, in spite of his mother's opposition to our marriage, that we were man and wife? My aunt Starkweather settled the question by a second tap on my shoulder. "'Take his arm!' she whispered, in a tone of a woman who had lost all patience with me. I took his arm. "'Follow your uncle!' Holding fast by my husband's arm, I followed my uncle and the curate who had assisted him at the marriage. The two clergymen led us into the vestry. The church was in one of the dreary quarters of London, situated between the city and the west end. The day was dull, the atmosphere was heavy and damp. We were a melancholy little wedding party, worthy of the dreary neighbourhood and the dull day. No relatives or friends of my husband's were present. His family, as I have already hinted, disapproved of his marriage. Except my uncle and my aunt, no other relations appeared on my side. I had lost both my parents, and I had but few friends. My dear father's faithful old clerk, Benjamin, attended the wedding to give me away, as the phrase is. He had known me from a child, and, in my forlorn position, he was as good as a father to me. The last ceremony left to be performed was, as usual, the signing of the marriage register. In the confusion of the moment, and in the absence of any information to guide me, I committed a mistake, ominous, in my aunt Starkweather's opinion, of evil to come. I signed my married instead of my maiden name. 
"'What?' cried my uncle in his loudest and cheeriest tones. "'You've forgotten your own name already? "'Well, well, let us hope you will never repent parting with it so readily. "'Try again, Valeria, try again.' With trembling fingers I struck the pen through my first effort, and wrote my maiden name, very badly indeed, as follows. Valeria Brinton. When it came to my husband's turn, I noticed with surprise that his hand trembled too, and that he produced a very poor specimen of his customary signature, Eustace Woodwill. My aunt, on being requested to sign, complied under protest. "'A bad beginning,' she said pointing to my first unfortunate signature with the feather end of her pen i hope my dear you may not live to regret it even then in the days of my ignorance and my innocence that curious outbreak of my aunt's superstition produced a certain uneasy sensation in my mind it was a consolation to me to feel the reassuring pressure of my husband's hand it was an indescribable relief to hear my uncle's hearty voice wishing me a happy life at parting the good man had left his north country vicarage my home since the death of my parents expressly to read the service at my marriage and he and my aunt had arranged to return by the midday train he folded me in his great strong arms and he gave me a kiss which must certainly have been heard by the idlers waiting for the bride and bridegroom outside the church door i wish you health and happiness my love with all my heart you are old enough to choose for yourself and no offence mr woodwill you and i are new friends and i pray god valeria it may turn out that you've chosen well our house will be dreary enough without you but i don't complain my dear on the contrary if this change in your life makes you happier i rejoice come come don't cry or you will set your aunt off and it's no joke at her time of life besides crying will spoil your beauty Dry your eyes and look in the glass there, and you will see that I am right. Good-bye, child, and God bless you. He tucked my aunt under his arm and hurried off. My heart sank a little, dearly as I loved my husband, when I had seen the last of the true friend and protector of my maiden days. The parting with old Benjamin came next. I wish you well, my dear, don't forget me, was all he said. But the old days at home came back on me at those few words. Benjamin always dined with us on Sundays in my father's time, and always brought some little present with him for his master's child. I was very near to spoiling my beauty, as my uncle had put it, when I offered the old man my cheek to kiss, and heard him sigh to himself, as if he too were not quite hopeful about my future life. My husband's voice roused me, and turned my mind to happier thoughts. "'Shall we go, Valeria?' he asked. I stopped him on our way out to take advantage of my uncle's advice, in other words, to see how I looked in the glass over the vestry fireplace. What does the glass show me? The glass shows a tall and slender young woman of three-and-twenty years of age. She is not at all the sort of person who attracts attention in the street, seeing that she fails to exhibit the popular yellow hair and the popular painted cheeks. Her hair is black dressed in these later days as it was dressed years since to please her father in broad ripples drawn back from the forehead and gathered into a simple knot behind like the hair of the venus de medicis so as to show the neck beneath her complexion is pale except in moments of violent agitation there is no colour to be seen in her face her eyes are of so dark a blue that they are generally mistaken for black her eyebrows are well enough in form but they are too dark and too strongly marked her nose just inclines toward the aquiline bend, and is considered a little too large by persons difficult to please in the matter of noses. The mouth, her best feature, 
is very delicately shaped and is capable of presenting great varieties of expression as to the face in general it is too narrow and too long at the lower part too broad and too low in the higher regions of the eyes and the head the whole picture as reflected in the glass represents a woman of some elegance rather too pale and rather too sedate and serious in her moments of silence and repose in short a person who fails to strike the ordinary observer at first sight but who gains in general estimation on a second and sometimes on a third view as for her dress it studiously conceals instead of proclaims that she has been married that morning she wears a grey cashmere tunic trimmed with grey silk and having a skirt of the same material and colour beneath it on her head is a bonnet to match relieved by a quilling of white muslin with one deep red rose as a morsel of positive colour to complete the effect of the whole dress have i succeeded or failed in describing the picture of myself which i see in the glass it is not for me to say i have done my best to keep clear of the two vanities the vanity of depreciating and the vanity of praising my own personal appearance for the rest well written or badly written thank heaven it's done and whom do i see in the glass standing by my side i see a man who is not quite so tall as i am and who has the misfortune of looking older than his years his forehead is prematurely bald his big chestnut-coloured beard and his long overhanging moustache are prematurely streaked with grey he has the colour in the face which my face wants and the firmness in his figure which my figure wants he looks at me with the tenderest and gentlest eyes of a light brown that i ever saw in the countenance of a man his smile is rare and sweet his manner perfectly quiet and retiring has yet a latent persuasiveness in it which is to women irresistibly winning he just halts a little in his walk from the effect of an injury received in past years when he was a soldier serving in india and he carries a thick bamboo cane with a curious crutch handle an old favourite to help himself along whenever he gets on his feet indoors or out with his own little drawback if it is a drawback there is nothing infirm or old or awkward about him his slight limp when he walks has perhaps to my partial eyes a certain quaint grace of its own which is pleasanter to see than the unrestrained activity of other men and last and best of all i love him i love him i love him and there is an end of my portrait of my husband on our wedding day the glass has told me all i want to know we leave the vestry at last the sky cloudy since the morning has darkened while we have been in the church and the rain is beginning to fall heavily the idlers outside stare at us grimly under their umbrellas as we pass through their ranks and hasten into our carriage no cheering no sunshine no flowers strewn in our path no grand breakfast no genial speeches no bridesmaids no father's or mother's blessing a dreary wedding there is no denying it and if aunt's dark weather is right a bad beginning as well a coup has been reserved for us at the railway station the attentive porter on the lookout for his fee pulls down the blinds over the side window of the carriage and shuts out all prying eyes in that way after what seems to be an interminable delay the train starts my husband winds his arm round me at last he whispers with a love in his eyes that no words can utter and presses me to him gently my arm steals round his neck my eyes answer his eyes our lips meet in the first long lingering kiss of our married life oh what recollections of that journey arise in me as i write let me dry my eyes and shut up my paper for the day End of chapter one